Welcome to Investments Unplugged. Before we get started, this commentary is for general information purposes only, and clients should seek professional advice for their particular situation. Thank you, and listen on. It's always like you guys are waiting to see who's going to go first, and there's this long pause, and then you sound like you're being stabbed. When we recorded our first Because You Asked episode, we thought it might be a one-off. In truth, we thought, hey, if we keep being asked the same questions, then everyone must be wondering the same thing. Why not turn it into a podcast? The response was, well, surprising. Given the feedback, you apparently found it of real value. So we were asked to do another one. In fact, we were asked to do one a quarter. So here you go. Because you asked, listen on, this is Investments Unplugged. Welcome back to Investments Unplugged. I'm your host, Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist with Manulife Investment Management. And joining me as always are my colleagues, Kevin Hedlund and Makan Nia. Welcome back to the show, guys. Thanks for having us. It's good to be here. Let's have some fun. All right. Well, it is going to be a fun one. Uh, this is going to be our quarterly now because you asked series. So the response from our last episode that we did, I think it was January, uh, where we were answering some of the more popular questions that we were getting from advisors and clients. The feedback was quite strong and we were asked to do this on a quarterly basis. So here we go. This is going to be the third iteration of Because You Asked, questions that you've been wondering about, uh, perhaps your clients have been wondering about, and we're gonna do our best to answer those that are most popular. So we're gonna skip to what you need to know this go round, uh, because the what you need to know is perhaps you know, the answers to all the questions that we've been receiving. So let's just jump right into the first one. And this is a great one. Given the fact that interest rates have risen as fast as they have year to date, Long bonds are down materially to start the year. What are our thoughts on whether someone should cut their losses on the position of long bonds or perhaps wait for a potential rebound for a better exit point? So let me start with this one because I, I feel pretty passionate about this and, and I've been getting this question a lot over the last couple of weeks in speaking with advisors that say, yes, I know I've seen losses in whatever bond fund that they own uh, that is more geared towards longer duration, but they have this belief that somehow we'll see a rebound in these bonds for them to get out or recoup some of their losses before they exit. Well, I guess the short answer is, yeah, I don't buy it. The long answer is the bond markets are a little bit different than the equity markets. If, if you buy a stock and the stock is down, it could just be because of volatility, sentiment, uncertainty, maybe an executive leaves. There are a myriad of reasons why uh, a stock could be down. And yes, a stock can rebound and you can recoup your losses. They turn management around, they sell assets, they restructure the business, they reorganize, they, they improve their lot. Uh, such that their profits turn around and, and they enjoy a higher multiple. With bonds, it's a little bit different. The reason why bonds are down year to date is because of the interest rate environment that has moved up. 
So in order to recoup these losses, there's two ways you can do it. The first way is wait for the income just to make up your losses, the coupons as they come in. Given that some of these losses are in excess of 5% and yields are, are quite low today, you could be waiting a while before you're above water and, and a while could be a couple of years. And in some cases, we've lost five years of income. That's not a very appealing prospect to sit there and, and say I have to hold and then in five years I'll, I'll in theory, be even. But the other one is that the only way that you know we could reasonably see bond yields retreat is because of a change in the environment for the worse. Uh, where the economy starts to weaken, we head into a, a slow patch in terms of economic activity. Um, there maybe is some other type of shock, but you know, given what we see going forward, I think that's a little less likely. And sometimes you do just have to cut and run because the alternative is you know, a long time waiting before you break even. Kevin, what are your thoughts on this? I think we as a team, and I think a lot of people think that uh, yields are going to continue to rise. Um, we're going to see a, a, a re-steepening of the yield curve from a, a pause perhaps we've seen over the last month or so. Um, and that's just further downside risk to long-duration bonds. So even, even cutting your losses today protects you from further losses maybe over the next 6 to 12 months. So why would it make sense to, to just get out while you can? Um, reallocate to perhaps something else to at least protect the downside and generate some better upside potential um, then continue to do the same thing and you know cross your fingers and hope and pray and we know that hope and pray are not investment strategies well jerome powell had uh what is it? it's april 28th and he had his uh meeting today and either you're in one of two camps you're in the camp that inflation is transitory or not and our team is clearly in the camp that we just do not see where inflation is transitory. We think it's going to be consistently higher. And the reason I think we, we think that, there's a couple of things. So there's all this evidence out there that, so example, number one. So the Bloomberg Agricultural Spot Index is at its highest point in nine years. And it's up close to 20% year to date. When you look at agricultural products, there are a large percentage of the CPI basket in Asia. And estimates are from analysts there is because of that, consumers or workers are going to ask for more wages or wage prices will increase in Asia and that will lead to uh, it trickling down the supply chain. We are very early in the earnings season in the US and the number one mentioned uh, type of theme is higher input costs and how CEOs and executives are planning on passing that along to the consumer. And this is anywhere from Coca-Cola, Chipotle, Whirlpool, Kimberly Clark, I can go on and on. And they're preparing to raise prices to offset rising input costs. Now I ask you, when companies increase prices, do they decrease them right afterwards? Very few and far between. So I think this is all just not, it's not anecdotal evidence, it's actual concrete evidence that uh, given material prices across the board, uh, given wage pressures, that it is likely that inflation is not going to be transitory over a couple of months and that we could get higher inflation and higher interest rates. And again, if you've listened to our team, we're not calling for 4% inflation. We're just saying that we think inflation and rates are going to be higher than what the Fed is saying and what generally consensus is saying, although consensus is re-rating higher. To, to close off this question, you know, you can wait around 
to try and recover, in which case you're hoping for a weaker economic environment, which seems less likely, or you're going to uh, earn your way out of your loss, which is letting your coupon recoup those losses. But that could be a, a while off. Sometimes it is better to shift into another investment that has a better opportunity to recoup losses faster than where you're sitting today. And this is, this is just kind of, I guess that loss aversion that we all have, we never wanna sell a loss and crystallize that loss because then it's real. But sometimes that's the best thing to do because the alternative uh, is much better. Um, well, that'll lead us to the second question, which is there's been a material rise in yields on higher inflation expectations. Mahan, you just started talking about inflation. Um, where are yields and inflation going from here? Uh, how do we improve the potential rate of return for conservative clients or, and I'll, I'll say income uh, clients uh, in this rising yield environment where you know, if yields continue to move up, then then the return on bonds, just generic bonds, might be weaker. So what type of equities do you want to own in a higher inflation, higher yielding environment? Let me start with this in terms of where we think yields and inflation are going. So further on what you said, Makan, you know, it struck me one thing. A lot of people out there believe that inflation is going to be transitory. And I will, I will, I will acknowledge that the big jump in inflation that we're likely to see April and May Yes, you know what, that is as a result of base effects, but for all the reasons that you listed, Makan, in terms of commodity prices, wages, all the other pressures that we're seeing that are inflationary, you know, I think, I think it's naive to think that all the fiscal and monetary stimulus won't lead to higher inflation. At the same time, those that believe it's transitory are probably just tearing the sheet out of the Fed playbook that where the Fed is saying it's transitory and saying, well, here you go. The Fed's saying it's transitory, it must be transitory, but it becomes self-serving. The Fed is not about to go out there and say, we see higher levels of sustained inflation. That would spook the bond markets. Yields would be going much higher than where they are today. And it would beg the question, okay, so if you're saying to us, Jerome Powell, that inflation is gonna be higher and here to stay, well, why aren't you raising rates? And aren't you at risk of running an overheated economy by keeping rates as low as, as they are? So the Fed's kind of backed into a corner here. They can't say, we see higher levels of sustained inflation without you know, spooking the bond markets and pushing yields much higher than where they are. So to those individuals that are listening to the Fed and taking their tone from it, I just say, just let's play this through and think about it because more likely the scenario is that yields or inflation's moving higher, yields will follow and the Fed will be forced to move, but the Fed's not going to trigger the move from here. So how much higher are we talking, Makan? You mentioned, you know, when we talk higher inflation, we're not saying four, five, six percent, anything what we had seen in the 80s. The 10-year average for inflation was 1.7%. So let's start at two and a half. Two and a half to three percent, I think, is reasonable as far as inflation expectations given the economic environment that we're in right now. So, Kevin, what do we do in a rising rate environment where inflation is trending higher, pushing yields up? What is a fixed income investor to do? It becomes very, very difficult for a fixing investor uh, in this environment um, because it's it's hard to find yield per, uh, per se, right? If they're just looking for income, but if you're looking at at protection in this environment, well, the playbook is is very simple, and it's it's what you do whenever uh, you're in a rising interest rate environment or a steepening yield curve environment 
is you want to uh, reduce your duration. So go to shorter term uh, fixed income bonds. And that doesn't mean less than one year. It could be less than five years. Uh, it depends on where uh, the curve is really steepening from. Uh, you want to perhaps embrace more credit. I would say uh, perhaps lower quality uh, investment grade bonds. So uh, single A, double B type area that at least pays you some kind of good yield. And even high yield, you know, you don't perhaps want to go to triple C or, or, or um, default bonds, but high yield credit tends to do well in this environment because when you're getting a steepening yield curve environment, you're getting an improving economic environment, which reduces default risk in higher yielding fixed income. Um, again, I would be, it's very issuer sensitive. So I would be, you know, it, it's a matter of, of picking the right issuers and right, and right to companies to invest in. You don't just want to invest in anything. Um, but there is pockets of opportunity, even in this tough fixing environment. Um, and lastly, I would say you want to look perhaps at, at some dividend paying equities for, for income. You know, there's an opportunity to uh, take advantage of not only higher yielders, but uh, we would favor dividend growers uh, in this environment where we can pick up some income um, through quality equities that are increasing their dividend as their prospects for earnings growth improve as well. Kev nailed it. So when you look at essentially the year-to-date performance of various fixed income asset classes, uh, when you look at 11 different uh, indices, of those 11, only two are positive year-to-date as of the end of March. So those were, in no surprise, as Kev mentioned, one was U.S. high yield, the other one is U.S. floating rate, and then slightly negative is uh, Canadian short-term bonds. So as Kev just mentioned, I think you want to stick with that playbook if you believe that inflation is not going to be transitory and rates are going to increase. Uh, And in one area, if you believe rates are going to increase from equities, and we saw it uh, unfold earlier in the year, is those very speculative tech names that did extremely well last year uh, will be challenged this year. So I think that's one area you do not want to be a part or investing in if you believe that rates will continue to increase. I think we will have to dedicate a whole podcast to inflation in the past and the government debt and how the two kind of you know, might play off each other. But that's uh, you know, stay tuned. It's more to come. But uh, let's get right back to the uh, the questions. This one sparked a, a good heated debate as we were doing it in the uh, in the pre rounds. Is the recent rally in the energy sector over? And what can we expect for the remainder of the year from the energy sector specifically? Follow-on question, how will this impact the Canadian dollar? Mock on, is the rally in the energy sector over? <laughs> uh, and when we say it was animated, is I think Philip's being very kind. Animated, heated, aggressive. Eh. So I think my view, I think we came to a uh, conclusion. It You have to write, ask the right questions. So question number one is, should I be buying it today? Or should I be holding on to energy if I've already, let's say I already bought it? And I think those two questions, or the answers to those are very different. Now, I think from, I think Kevin and I fell in the same camp and Philip to a certain degree, but I think energy in my career is one thing that I am amazingly good at not predicting correctly, uh, except for at the extremes. And when you're in this area today of $65, it's very hard. I, I find if I'm saying it's going to go up, it typically goes flat or down. 
uh, I think we're in that area, but we came to the realization, okay, given our team's view in terms of we think we are in that glass half full camp where we look back at 2021 and there'll be incremental improvements. And in that environment, demand for oil will continue to improve. I think this morning or yesterday, uh, gasoline demand in the U.S. Uh, came out and it's already at pre-COVID levels for this time of year. And as states like California and New York and Illinois, big democratic states that haven't reopened fully, there will be demand there. I know there's a blip globally because of the cases in India, but generally we believe that things are going to get better. Uh, that should improve the demand and supply is usually slow to adapt. Uh, so in that view, I think the path of re- least resistance is upwards. So is the rally over uh, unlikely? Would I be adding to positions today? Probably not, because I think there's better opportunities from a risk-adjusted perspective. If you already own energy, is it the reason to sell? The answer is no. You know, we're, we as a team always look at, at probabilities and, and the risks to the upside or downside. And I think from here, if you believe in um, a reopening of the global economy and a, a post-COVID environment, there's going to be demand for energy. And I think that's going to drive uh, prices higher, uh, at least in the near term. You know, Where it goes from here... As Makan said, you know, it's almost impossible to predict, but I, I think still uh, there's risk to the upside. Um, and it's a, it, is it a buy, hold, or sell? It's a hold. It, it's hold weight in your portfolio. If you're adding money to your portfolio, you keep maintaining the same weight in energy. I don't think you want to add or, or uh, reduce uh, from here. It's definitely not a, you know a, a, an easy play where we were you know a year ago when oil was at one point what minus thirty seven dollars and you said it's only going to go up from here uh, by oil um, you know that's an extreme level right Makan that's an easy play you think it's going to go up from from negative numbers we've never seen before uh, but where we are here we're near a, a recent long term average so it's hard to predict uh, how much higher it's going to go from here so what implications does that have for the currency I guess P you know let me just say on energy I do think the risks are to the upside so I. I the nice thing about the team is that we do have healthy debate and we don't have to, uh, we, we discourage groupthink um, and no one is afraid to challenge anyone else, uh, which might be you know obvious if you listen to the, the podcasts in the past, but, and I think it's a good thing. And I, I think I would agree with that when I, so I might be the outlier here in terms of, look, personally, I own energy and I own oil and I, I do think there's upside, but do I think there's more upside today, given the rally that we've seen in the last three to six months? versus the broad market. And that's where I sit there going, mm, I'm not as convinced that there's significantly more upside um, uh, today than the broad market, which would have me basically agree with you guys saying, yeah, I don't know if I would be aggressive into oil today because I'm not sure that it's going to do better than say the TSX. Um, I do think there's upside, but you know, for the risks that we've seen in the energy sector over the last 10 years, do I want to make a big bet against it? Probably not. Probably not. I like the exposure. Um, I like market exposure, and I would probably keep it to that. So the impact on the Canadian dollar, though, here too. Well, this is what we've been saying all year, is that the Canadian dollar, absent any changes in central bank policy in Canada or the United States, it's become a petrocurrency again. And so if we believe the risk to oil is to the upside, even if oil just stays where it is, the risk to the Canadian dollar is to the upside. Fair value for the Canadian dollar at oil in the low $60 range is closer to about $0.83. Cents. So yeah, that's probably where we're headed. 
the risk is to the upside for the Canadian dollar as the risk is to the upside for oil. If the risks to oil changed, well, obviously the risk of the Canadian dollar would change. So watch oil for the direction of the Canadian dollar. Um, and we think the risk is that both can continue to head higher through 2021. Finish that, that thought out with, with um, the team's um, target for Canadian dollar uh, through the rest of this year. At the start of the year, we said 79 to 81 cents. Um, you know, today we're over 81 cents. So we broke through our low end target. We've, we've hit our upper end target. We did revise it at the end of the first quarter to upwards of 83 cents. But here too, the risk is to the upside. So watch for that 83 cent Canadian dollar. Uh, on the inverse, that's about 120. And uh, we do think that the risk is uh, further strengthening of the Canadian dollar vis-a-vis -vis the US. So where can we be wrong? So, well, this came out of the conversation that we had, Makan, is that we could be wrong if OPEC decides to open the floodgates and produce more oil. Um, and, and then you can see the oil price drop. So I mean, the, the argument for higher oil prices today is that demand is increasing faster than supply. If supply starts to increase faster than demand, well, then you can get the price receding back down to the $50 level or even lower. I guess the question is, will OPEC or, or the individual members really do that? Now, OPEC as a group, I don't think will, but the individual members, I, I don't have any faith that you know, they're all going to sit there and, and abide by you know, any quotas that they set out when you know, some have the profit motive and, and financial motive to, to pump more and sell it on, on the market somewhere. So that's how we could be wrong. I like to think that you, know, you don't want to kill the golden goose. And so if the objective is to get oil prices back to 75 or higher for OPEC, um, now this isn't any official stance, but in readings in the past, it seems 75 is that kind of target where they would like to go. Then you wait until you get there and then you slowly open the taps. Uh, that's what I would do if I was OPEC, but you know, they, don't, they don't take my calls anymore. So um, you know, it, I think that's how we could be wrong. I don't think I don't think compliance would like that if you're taking calls from OPEC. <laughs> <laughs> I think what we were also discussing, we don't have the right answer or a good one at that, is uh, the discount or premium that oil producers in this country will have relative to the price change in oil, and how ESG changes that, and obviously more of a discount, right? Um, I don't think we have a good answer, and probably don't have enough time. To even discuss that here but it's interesting to think how esg and the proliferation of all these funds and the overlay on all these funds might just you know create discounts relative to the increase in the price of oil it is a good question and, and you know we'll have to note that for future uh future episodes where we will bring back a couple of our portfolio managers and ask them their thoughts on the energy sector and how you value the energy sector in this new world of esg on to the next question uh, because we still have a couple more that we want to get through um, emerging markets now we added emerging markets into our model portfolio at the end of September last year and emerging markets as a whole had a great fourth quarter great start to 2021 and then and then hit a correction um, so are emerging markets still in favor for 2021 considering their relative underperformance to the developed markets year to date mock on in short yes the when we decided to add to the EM 
space in uh, the second half of last year, we sat down as a team and we just had an intellectual project of should we have a dedicated EM sleeve? And we went through the exercise. We put out two investment notes. Uh, the third's coming out in a couple of weeks. And it really comes down to the big picture, the fundamentals, the human capital of the area, the financial capital, how productive they are, uh, the growth of the middle class there. That has not changed in a matter of three months. And then the second aspect of it, this isn't your typical EM index that you're used to. So a lot less energy materials, a lot more information technology, consumer discretionaries, uh, services in general, uh, also in terms of country allocation. So back in the day, it was very Brazil, Mexico, South Africa. Today, 80% of it has exposure to uh, emerging market Asia. None of that has changed in the past three months. The only thing that has changed is relative is the performance. So when I look at performance year to date, why uh, we're getting questions of should we can, should we add the EM today? It's because EM's underperformed. It's up. Let's just say I'm going to use round numbers: five and a half versus the TSX of ten and the S and P and U.S. dollars of eleven and a half. But it's the time frame you look at. If I look at it from year over year, EM is still up fifty five percent. The TSX is only up, I shouldn't say only, but it's up 32% and the S&P is up 48. So when we added to uh, the emerging market, it was on, a, and I'm going to steal Kevin's line. I'm going to give him credit here. It's not a tactical trade that we're doing here. It's a strategic investment and that has not changed. Uh, everything that we liked about it is still in place. Now, there are things that and maybe you guys can talk about it in terms of, China slowing in February, the credit impulses, things of that nature, but short term in nature. And we would uh, suggest that take advantage of some of the weakness. And if you haven't added to EM, that this is uh, maybe a good opportunity to add to EM. So the answer, the long answer, or the short answer is yes. The long answer is also yes. We still like EM and it's a 10% dedicated sleeve in our model portfolio. And I think we have to think about it this way. I mean, you know, normally we get excited about corrections. If a correction happens, we sit there and we say, this is fantastic. Our work has shown in the United States anyway, that when you get a correction outside of a recession, these are buying opportunities because the one year forward return is positive 90% of the time. So, you know, this is something that you know, we often say, hey, if, if we get a correction, we would embrace that because we do not see signs of recession. I look at it and say, yeah, the emerging markets got the correction that perhaps the rest of the world should have been involved in as well. But we didn't see it in the United States because of the Robin Hood traders or because everyone is so trained to buy the dip that as soon as we saw barely a 5% dip, the buyers came out in droves. So when I look at the emerging markets that are, are down you know, or were down 10% off the top, I look at that and say, fantastic. This, this allows investors that were hesitant to get into it before the opportunity to buy it because you know, our work would show that you know, corrections outside of recessions are buying opportunities and we think that this is one. Fundamentals haven't changed. They haven't changed for this year or next year. Um, and I, I think you know, the, the whole credit impulse story in China is one that is a little overblown. Yes, the amount of credit uh, expansion in China is slowing, but you know, the, the monetary base is still expanding. And the, some of the economic numbers out of China very recently have been very encouraging there's no mid-cycle slowdown going on here and the rest of the world is just going to continue to demand more and the Chinese factories are going to continue to pump uh, pump product out. So look, that's China specific, but I think this is is broader uh, 
to the emerging markets as a whole that I haven't seen anything fundamentally that would change my view that this is still an attractive opportunity. I think also we have to go back to our growth and inflation matrix that we worked on uh, at the end of last year. You know, if you again, it's, I'm going to I'm going to be uh, selling a broken record here. But if you believe in an improving economic environment, if you believe that inflation is trending higher, the work we've done as a team has shown that emerging markets do very, very well in this environment. It is actually the best environment of all for the emerging market equities. You're always going to have short-term hiccups. If people are responding to uh, portfolio allocations because of a one-month blip, who knows why, um, that's not the way to, to manage money. Um, you have to look at the longer-term opportunity. And as Makan alluded to, this is not a, a, a tactical trade. It's not you know a three-month trade. It's not even a one-year investment. We as a team have decided that we should hold at least a minimum 5% unique allocation to emerging markets within a diversified portfolio because you're if you're trying to time it you're going to miss the big moves in emerging markets and i think you want to hold it long term really for these structural changes that are going on in asia not just china but asia as a whole where um, there's a lot of a lot of opportunities that are, will be coming from that area of the world over the next five ten plus years Bancon, it is April 28th today. The S&P 500 index year-to-date is up 11.5%. Is it time to take money off the table if the average return over the last 50 years is 12%? Well, if you've listened to the fearless forecast, I called for 20-plus percent, so I think we're only halfway there. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think you also called for a 20% uh, uh pullback no. so a deep correction did I, I, by I know a, we, I know me and you bet Kev on a correction which we uh, definitely lost so uh, well we should have said a correction in, yeah we should have said a correction in the emerging markets we would have won I thought we did say that no <laughs> I changed the rules as we go along uh, should you sell out no investors may think that okay I've earned my long term like we know the over the long run uh, depending on how you look at it, whether it's from the 70s or 50, but you're looking at a return of high single digits, so that 9 to 11%. And we've got 11.5 in the S&P. But what I really want to highlight as well is the markets very rarely have average returns. Now, there's a slide in our chart deck, which I encourage you to uh, get from your wholesaler on page 42, where what we do is we break down since 1970 on a calendar year basis, the returns for the S&P 500. And more often than not, the majority of the time, you can segment the returns really in three groups. So 20% of the time, market returns are negative. And we know what is that overarching theme in those periods. It's a recession. And you we, don't, we think the odds of a recession are very low this year. Then the other 20% are returns of between basically 0 and 10%. But 60% of the time, market returns are greater than 10%. And what really is interesting to me is 35% of the time, actually they're greater than 20 So I think investors are generally cautious. And I think when the COVID environment, everyone's even more cautious. But just because we've got the long-term return and we've got it quick in one quarter doesn't mean that the markets don't have room to run. Uh, historically speaking, 
uh, the odds are actually in your favor that markets will continue to run. Will they increase at this breakneck uh, speed in Q1? I hope so. I really do. But unlikely. So a little bit lower returns or a smoother return, maybe some corrections along the way. But I think there's still room for returns for the rest of the year. Yeah, you know, this this reminds me of, of first, I remember when you put that chart together, I was surprised to see that more than a little bit more than a third of the time returns are actually above 20%. I I would have said that's the anomaly and that those are the rare periods, not that that's, you know, the highest frequency. Um, but a study that I did going back to 1927 looked at momentum in the markets over a six or 12 month period, just to say, to answer the question, that we're getting and saying, okay, the market's up, it's run, it's, it's, we're up over 70% from the lows of March, should I be pulling money? We're due for a correction. And when I looked at it both on a 12 month period, so here's how I broke it down. If the markets or the S&P 500 was up 20% within the last 12 months or the last six months, did we have a greater probability of a correction over the following 12 or six months? And the answer was, no. In fact, on a 12-month basis, the probability of a correction was lower. On a six-month basis, the probability of a correction was the same than any other environment. So just because the markets are up by 20% or more doesn't mean you're more likely to see a correction. There's no greater probability of that, but there is a greater probability of additional gains. And so this was the, the other surprising element to it. When you're up by 20%, within a 12 month period, the odds of being up by 10% in the coming 12 months is greater than any other period. And, it, and it's about, uh, if I recall, the odds of being up uh, another 10% in the coming 12 months was 70% versus I think it was 60% uh, for any other period. So actually what, what the study told us is, and what we should be thinking about is momentum begets momentum. You know, Just because the markets are up doesn't mean they're gonna go down. Right? It's like the whole thing, what goes up must come down. Well, not necessarily. Actually, when it comes to equity markets, what goes up tends to stay up uh, or go even further. Yeah, should we be taking money off the table? No. Should we be rebalancing though? Well, yes. Now, but that's a different aspect to it. That's not moving to cash. That's just maintaining your risk profile between equities and fixed income so that you are in balance. And and that's, I think, the, the key difference. It's it's no, we shouldn't necessarily take money off the table, but we should ensure that we're not taking too much risk because the market gains have been substantial and we should take opportunities to rebalance when we can. I think it's important to understand also this market has been a, you know, almost a, for the most part, a fairly slow moving market year to date. Um, I, I think we're going to be in this, this kind of uh, choppiness for quite a while with an upward bias. And I think we'll probably be surprised and maybe you know exceed Mockon's twenty percent growth uh, uh, fuels forecast uh, point to point. Um, and I think again, if you think that earnings are going to continue to grow, um, it's a really good opportunity. But I think also as Mockon alluded to earlier, this is not necessarily the right time to be chasing uh, those high flyers and returns. You know, uh, make sure, as Philip mentioned, you are understanding your risk tolerance and, and maintaining your your portfolio where it should be. Um, and, and not try and hit home runs in this market because you know, it's not a cheap valuation market. It's a, a attractive market, but uh, by no means is it something where we should be chasing um, outsized returns. We should be investing prudently in, in good businesses that are going to take advantage of this eventual uh, economic reopening. Our last question is a good one, and I'm going to ask 
each of you to offer one thought to it. So, I mean, we, so, and the question is this, what is the major risk for the markets, I'll say this year or next, let's say the next 18 to 24 months, considering pretty much everyone is positive on the macro outlook. Now, I'll just set up this way. We have the potential for inflation. We have the potential for higher taxation. We have uh, the potential for perhaps the Fed or other central banks moving too soon, moving too late. There, there could be any number of risks out there in the environment. Kevin, why don't we start with you? What do you think the one major potential risk is for the markets over the course of the next year or so? If I were to choose one, I would have to go with a policy misstep. I would have to say you know, um, unwinding some liquidity too early, uh, raising rates too early. I don't think it's going to happen. I think they've learned from 2009, I guess, uh, through 13 with the uh, um, uh, the taper tantrum. Uh, but I, I think that's probably the, the biggest uh potential risk out there is a policy misstep, um, which spooks the bond market, which ultimately spooks the equity market, especially with valuation where it is right now. Um, that would be uh, my uh, major risk, I'd say, over the next uh, 18, 24 months. Makan, your, um, your major risk over the next 18, 24 months? So my answer is always, it's something that I have no idea. Uh, I know you're going to talk to this, P, but I think maybe if it's going to be something, it's going to be a short-term implosion somewhere uh given the like perfect example was the archego collapse cost 10 billion dollars to various banks i'll let you go to that one thing i know it's not going to be because we're starting to get a lot more questions on it is the increase of higher capital gains or higher capital gains tax in the u.s by president biden I know what was the last week when that came out where there's talks of doubling it from 24 to 48, market sold off, uh, and we've recouped. And look, we are, we're, we're students of history. There's been four times in recent history that you have seen a higher capital gain tax. Uh, 2013 was the most recent, 87, 76, and 69. And under each four of those, yes, the returns before it are lower, uh, when you average uh, those four events, three months before, it's 1.4. But after it goes into place, uh, returns come right back up. So three months after it, they're up 6.4. Uh, the next six months are 2.1. And the next year is basically 4.3. So if you think that this is going to have an implication uh, over the next year or two years because of uh, capital gains tax, Histories would suggest it's very short term, very similar to geopolitical risk, right? And I've been getting a lot more questions, and I know the team has in terms of China and Taiwan and things of that nature. And these things are very short term, and you're better off just ignoring them uh, because more often than not, they have very little impact, uh, medium to long term. Yeah, that's a great one as well. And geopolitical, I want to, I want to leave that one off the table because that one always comes up and, and we just kind of push that aside saying, look, I can point to any year in any geopolitical event and it has, it has never had a lasting impact on the markets or rarely has had a lasting impact on the markets. I mean, there are a lot of things I can eliminate. I can eliminate recession. I, I think there's a very low probability of a traditional economic recession over the course of the next two years. I just, with all the fiscal and monetary stimulus, it's hard to see that. Um, the financial one is an interesting one. And yeah, you know what? We did talk about this offline. If we look in the past, what can trigger a shock? It could be a financial crisis of some type. But how do we predict that? 
right? It, it is unpredictable. It's impossible. Exactly. I mean, maybe you, there were some people that saw it coming with subprime, um, but they were very, very few. Um, so it's, it's very difficult to try and predict it. Could it be a, a strain of COVID that becomes immune or, or um, you know, in, ineffected by the vaccines? Maybe, but again, this is something that I can't plan for. Here's the one, so I'm gonna turn this on its head and saying, you know what I think the biggest risk is within the markets? It's that this becomes one of those very cruel bull markets and doesn't let anyone in. Meaning what we talked about in the last question, should I be taking money off the table? Well, no, our, our work would show that momentum begets momentum. We're seeing positive impacts to the economy. We, we ha I have a scenario where we could actually see the economy overheat. Now, it's not a problem today coming out of COVID. Could be a problem in 2023 or 2024, you know, um, but am I worried about that today? No, but what that means is Makan, you could win your bet and your fearless forecast that the markets are up not only 20%, but beyond that. And there are a number of, in, of investors sitting on the sidelines waiting for a correction that might not happen to get back into this market that they sold out of at some point last year for geopolitical reasons, for fears of, of geopolitical risk or COVID risk or whatever it is. That's what I think the biggest risk is. That's a good one. That's a really good one. Yeah, that investors are waiting around for something that might not happen because I can easily make the, the case why equity markets could be up another 20% from where we are today. And a lot easier than why we would be down 20%. So as far as the risks that we can manage, I think that's the one. And how do I mitigate that? Well, if there are individuals uh, like myself or others that want to put money into the market, I think the best way is, is you know, pick your timeline, dollar cost average in, and just go with it. Uh, because waiting around for that opportune time uh, might never come. And like, you know, you guys remember, a good friend of ours, Walter McCormick, said, you know what, sometimes a bull market won't let you in. And I think that is one of the big risks that we could see in 2021 or 2022. One of the things you mentioned there, P, is uh, people staying on the sidelines. Because if you look at the headlines, there there's so many people trying to predict the next correction or the next bear market and, and reasons why. And we know when people are trying to do that or we, those are headlines, that's not what happens, right? The market often goes in the opposite way. Um, so it's important to say, don't wait for that perfect time. Uh, I, I agree with you 100%. It's, you know, there's no real easy reason why the market should be down. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why the market should be up from here. Well, gentlemen, I really enjoy these uh, Because You Asked episodes. It uh, one just goes right to our listeners who are asking these questions and wondering these questions because we get them on an ongoing basis. Um, but I also think it just engages in some very, very timely discussion. And I want to thank you for your insights. And, and to all those listeners out there, you know, please keep those questions coming in. As we said at the onset of this episode, we will be running a Because You Asked episode once a quarter. We'll be gathering your, your questions, the most popular questions, and answering them directly on this podcast to make sure that you know, everyone can be informed or have you know, a view uh, and, and maybe gain something from our view to help hopefully make you all better investors. Um, any last thoughts, gentlemen? Uh, nope, I think we've said everything we have to say. <laughs> all right, well, I'll leave it with this. You know, thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast and other podcasts that we've done, please take a moment to rate us. It helps other like-minded individuals find us on the various podcast 
platforms, whether that be um, Apple, Spotify, uh, Google Play, I think it is, and any others, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, so again, please, you know, we appreciate it. We appreciate the feedback. So uh, don't be shy with uh, rating us uh, when you're done listening. On behalf of Makan Nia and Kevin Headland, this is Philip Peterson. Thank you for listening to Investments Unplugged. Copyright Manulife. Commentary is for general information purposes only and shouldn't be relied on for specific financial, legal, or other advice and does not constitute an offer or an invitation by or on behalf of Manulife Investment Management to any person to buy or sell any security. Opinions expressed are those of Manulife and or the sub-advisor of Manulife Investment Management and are subject to change based on market and other conditions. Manulife isn't responsible for any losses arising from any use of this information. Manulife funds are managed by Manulife Investment Management Limited, formerly named Manulife Asset Management Limited. Manulife Investment Management is a trade name of Manulife Investment Management Limited. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fun facts and prospectus before investing. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. This information does not replace or supersede know your client suitability, needs analysis, or any other regulatory requirements.